Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me, as usual, is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. It's Uh, good to be back. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening. We have 90 minutes left in the program tonight, and we are looking forward to interacting with you. This is a live interactive call-in program. Let me encourage you to invite your friends, invite your family to listen and tune in and interact with us. doesn't matter if you're in Antigua. doesn't matter if you're in the Eastern Caribbean. doesn't even matter if you are in the Western Hemisphere. No matter where you are, we would love for you to join us if you are... Elsewhere in the world, outside of the Eastern Caribbean, you can encourage listeners to join us by going to www.radiolighthouse.org and click on the Start Listening link. Pastor, we've got two questions that we're going to jump back to, uh, kind of a follow-up from a previous episode. The first one is, can you please explain the phrase, from the days of John the Baptist, the kingdom who suffereth violence, and were taken by force. Did the king and the kingdom suffereth violence too? And that comes from Matthew chapter 11 and verse number 12. Yeah, if you read the the text and the city context of it, um, you'll notice that when you begin in chapter 11 in verses um, 2 and 3, verse 12, sorry, can you read that? Uh, 2 and 3, 11, 2 and 3. 11, 2 and 3 says, Now when John had heard in the prison that the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? And if you look at um, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 of Matthew, Matthew 4.12 says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. Now notice you go from Matthew 4 to Matthew 11, and the same reference is to John. So John has been in prison now for between the 7 to 12 months, almost a whole year, by the time this thing happened. The reason why I'm pointing that out uh, is to try to explain what the text means. You notice that in verse 12 he says, From the days of John the Baptist until now. So the period he's talking about is when John began his ministry until currently our Lord was there and he was speaking to our Lord. So uh, he's referring to that period between John's, um, uh, from the time John began his ministry until where he was now. Uh, so he's talking about a 30-year period, uh, by the way. Um, our Lord, uh, you know, John, our Lord ministered for three years. John was born about six months before him. So you're looking at three and a half years, basically, for John's ministry. 
But he's, he's, he also mentioned in verse 13 that um, if you read verse 13 verse after verse 12 in chapter 11. Chapter 11, 13 says, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Yeah, so what he's saying here um, is that really prior to John's ministry, all the prophetic writings prophesied about this kingdom to come. But something happened when John came. Uh, and that's what we said from John until now, because with the coming of John, it was no longer a prophecy about the Messiah coming. The Messiah had come. So John's ministry began, the, 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 the teaching of the kingdom had arrived because the king had arrived on the scene and he was offering the kingdom to Israel. That is why uh, I think it's so important to understand that John's uh, ministry began the program. You remember when he came on the scene in Matthew chapter 1? Uh, John said what? Uh, I'm not worthy repent. to lose his. Yeah, okay. repent. The, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's John's message. And he's calling the people to repent because remember according to the prophecies in Malachi, and uh, Isaiah, one would go before the Lord to prepare the way. So John was preparing the way for the king to come. Now the king had come. Uh, but now uh, in chapter 11, we find that John is where? In prison, right? Beginning of chapter 11, he's in prison. But we discovered that in chapter 4, verse 13, he's been in prison now for about seven months the whole year. And our Lord is now using the occasion. That's why he uses the expression for the days of John until now. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and violence, uh, people tried to take it by force. In other words, while John was calling people to repentance, there was a cabal, or a political, uh, religious group, that rather than surrender to the king, they are the ones that are trying to maintain the control of the nation of Israel to whom the kingdom was offered. And they're the ones that uh, created conflict in the kingdom. In other words, they, they, they created threats to him, they plotted against him, they schemed against Christ, they slandered him, they brought false charges against him, they even imprisoned John and later executed John. So the, the Lord is, is here uh, pointing out that from the time John began to preach the kingdom, those who wanted to maintain the religious status quo of the control of the people rather than surrender to the king, they're using all kinds of violence, and that violence is exhibited in the fact that John is now incarcerated, and of course we know that John's head was taken off. So you've got Satan really putting a fight uh, to keep Israel in darkness as far as the kingdom is concerned. You've got Herod arresting John as part of the satanic plot to keep the kingdom from the right king because John is the one who is the herald of the king. And then you've got Israel's religious leaders who are conspiring against to kill the king. As a matter of fact, look at Matthew twelve fourteen. Matthew twelve fourteen reads as follows. Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him how they might destroy him. Exactly. So he's explaining what, he, what he's saying here. For the time of John until now, the kingdom has suffered violence in the sense that the king has come but the opposition in Israel is such that nobody willing, the religious leaders are not willing to surrender to the king, and they're plotting all kinds of violence. Eventually, of course, they are going to, to kill him. There's a good illustration of this in Matthew 21, uh, 33 to 46, in one of the parables that our Lord taught. I think you'll get a better understanding of what he meant by the uh, violence against the kingdom. Matthew twenty one thirty three. Yeah. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to a husbandman and went into a far country. And there and when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servant to the husbandman that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman 
took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent another servant more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But the husbandmen saw the son. They said among themselves, Is this the heir? Come, let us kill him. Let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, that what will he do unto those husbandmen? That's an illustration of what he's talking about, that uh, the Lord had prophesied that the king would come through the prophets. Israel stoned the prophets. Then he sends a, a different group, which, of course, the New Testament, including John and the apostles. Again, Israel rejected them. And then he sent his son, basically. And what happened? They killed his son. Mm-hmm. So this is what he's taught. This is an illustration of what this text is all about, that the kingdom of, of Christ, which was to be established and was promised by the prophets, when the king did come and had sent his herald before, which John the Baptist, to, to announce that the king has come, one would have thought that they would have responded positively. But instead, the religious leaders who had the control of the people and wanted to maintain their power and their control actually plotted against Christ, envied him, the Bible said, and ultimately led to his death. So this is what he's talking about here, uh, that the kingdom suffering violence. Uh, he's talking about the opposition and the uh, actual physical violence that was involved in trying to keep the king from reigning. Of course, we know that we look back on this, this is all part of the plan of God that the Messiah would be crucified and it would become a means of redemption for the entire world. But uh, that's what he's talking about there. Our next question is also a follow-up from last week, and it reads, Is the trumpet mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15.52 the same as the seventh trumpet mentioned in Revelation 11.15? And I will pull up these references. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 52 says... In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. Okay. Um, the problem, I, um, this, this is uh, Nathan from Nevis that asked this question last week, and I gave him a, a very quick answer, but I, wanted to, I told him I would come back and probably deal with it more extensively. Um, the problem that people do is to conflate the passage in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15, and uh, the one in... First uh, Corinthians chapter 15 uh, and they think that because Revelation talks about seven trumpets and of course the seventh trumpet will be the last trumpet they assume that uh, the one reference in First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 52 is also mentioned by the way in First Thessalonians 4.16 that you're referring to the two things and this is where you try, where people make the mistake of trying to interpret the Bible by analogy rather than exegesis. Exegesis has to take the context in order. Mm. Analogy is just seeing something that's seen to be saying the same thing or using the same word and come to the same conclusion. And that's one of the most grievous mistakes that are made when it comes to interpreting the Bible. Now, when we talk about last, uh, you can talk last in terms of a sequence, like there are, six, there are seven trumpets and the last will be the seventh of the of the seven of the of the six of them, um, and then you can also look at last in point of time or last as a conclusion of a program, and that's why in uh, Thessalonians it's talking about the last trump uh, is referring to the fact that this is bringing the conclusion of the church age. Uh, this is calling this to the end. That's what it's, it's about. It's not the same thing in Revelation. Let me draw some contrast between the two of them. 
one. In First Corinthians fifteen fifty-two, uh, the trumpet is sung before wrath comes out. As a matter of fact, the the whole principle in First Corinthians chapter is giving the believers hope uh, that the Messiah is going to come. He's going to take the church to be with him. It's a it's a uh, teaching of hope. You also find that in Thessalonians, it's a it's a message of hope to those who had lost loved ones. The Lord is going to return. However, when you come to Re- uh, Revelation chapter. 11 verse 15 the trumpet songs at the end of the time of wrath so notice that the first one has to do before there's any wrath the church is taken but if you check Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 it's, it comes at the end of a time of a series of wrath it goes from uh, trumpet number 1 to trumpet number 6 so clearly you cannot be referring to the same thing the other thing in Thessalonians uh, it is called the trump of God uh, and in the book of Revelations is the trump of an angel, not the trump of God that is sounded. So again, there's a clear distinction between the two. Uh, the trumpet for the church is singular in the book of Corinthians, uh, um, Corinthians fifteen fifty-two. In the book of um, Revelation, it's not a singular trumpet. It's a series of seven trumpets that will be blown, and the seventh one is the climax of it. So you're not dealing with the same same thing. Um, we are also told in uh, Thessalonians, which refers to the same passage, Thessalonians four sixteen, that the voice associated with the song of the trumpet that summons the dead happens before the resurrection. As a matter of fact, it's that voice that calls the dead in Christ to rise. When you come to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 17, there is mention of resurrection, uh, but these trumpet songs after that resurrection. So one is before and one is after. Of course, it's talking about the resurrection of the of the tribulation saints, two different things altogether. In the trumpet in Thessalonians chapter 14, it's a trumpet that is one that offers blessing and life and glory. The one that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 15, the seventh trumpet, is a message of judgment. Again, you're dealing with two different themes. Uh, number six, in, the, in Thessalonians, the last trumpet songs in a moment in the twinkle of an eye. Uh, as though it is something that is surprising and unexpected and sudden. However, the seventh trumpet in Revelation is not something surprising because six must go before it. Mm. So it's a a completely different thing altogether. And then number seven, in Thessalonians uh, Thessalonians 4, God is dealing with the church in particular. The last trump is the final trumpet that will end the church age. In Revelation 11.15, God is dealing with Israel and bringing judgment upon Israel to purify the nation of its infidelity, and he's dealing with the Gentile powers and punishment for the corruption, the evil that brought upon planet Earth. So again, it's two different things. In Revelation 11.15, it depicts a great earthquake in which thousands are slain and those that are left, the remnant, are stricken with fear. In Thessalonians, there's no earthquake, and there's no group left uh, in fear. They're actually taken. And then finally, in Revelations um, 11, 7, uh, 11, 15, the seventh trumpet, rewards are given in verse 18 and takes place on earth. However, in, in Thessalonians chapter 4, the believers are taken to glory where they are suffering, uh, they will go to the judgment seat of Christ. So the judgment that occurs after First Thessalonians 4 is a judgment in heaven called the judgment seat of Christ. The one that occurs in Revelation chapter uh, 11 is actually taking place on planet earth for the rewards of those who are faithful during the tribulation period. So there are seven distinctions between 
what occurs in Corinthians chapter 15 and what occurs in Revelation chapter 11. And of course, things that differ are not the same. So we're not dealing with the same thing. And that's why it's important not to try to come to a biblical interpretation by analogy. You've got to do the proper exegesis and look at the context and the passage and do the comparisons. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at org. This is a live interactive call-in program, so if you have a question, you can call one 268 462-7420 to ask your question live on the air. I'll give you that number again. 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, it is a different number, and I will give that number to you now. WhatsApp or text one 1454 And you can join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your questions under the video feed or beside the video feed, however it shows up on your device, and it'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Now, I know right before this station ID, Pastor was sharing a lot of information in relation to a question about 1 Corinthians and the book of Revelation and the trumpet. And there was a whole lot of comparison, a lot of information there. And if you want to go back and listen to that, again, you can tune into the program, the repeat of the program on Saturday afternoon from 3.30 until 5 o'clock. Or later this week, you can listen to the podcast of the program and you can download it and you can listen to it as many times as you need to in order to be able to digest that information the pastor was sharing. The easiest way to get to that podcast well, there's multiple ways, but the easiest way that I'm going to share with you right now is go to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down until you see the large picture of the microphone. And there's right in the middle, there's a circle right in the middle of your screen that says podcast. Click on that link and then you will see uh, the first podcast listed is That's Truth. And... Uh, there's a archive of all of the previous episodes. Later this week, in a day or two, we will podcast this episode, and you'll be able to listen to it as many times as you desire. Thank you for joining us tonight for That's Truth. And when I say joining us, I don't mean just joining us by listening. I mean joining us by interacting with us. Pastor, do you have anything else you want to mention on that program? No, on that I think that those two questions, I think I probably have done an adequate job, I hope. All right. Thank you to the individuals who sent in those questions, and thank you to the individuals who have already sent in a number of questions for this evening. Pastor, a WhatsApp question from St. Martin, and one that probably has crossed many people's minds. Should Christians take the COVID-19 vaccine? <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of smiling and, and laughing because I, I, you know, I, I've heard so many controversial things about it. There's so many conspiracy theories, uh, um, at this juncture in, in my own life, I'm in my 60s, I think if I was offered a vaccine, uh, I, I would probably take it because I think that uh, I am at that stage where I am in very much danger. Um, so I would probably take the vaccine. I would say to people that um, I don't buy all the conspiracy theories that are out there. Uh, I really don't. Um, People even relate it to the mark of the beast and some kind of a computer program involved. And I mean, when I read this kind of stuff, I am, I am really amazed at how 
we've probably allowed the Matrix or some other movie to, to try to get more control of our mind and our thinking. But I do feel that um, unless we're going against all the facts and unless there's a, a conspiracy of every single nation on the heaven, uh, etc., but they do realize it's a problem, and the the vaccine has been uh, thoroughly tested, and I think it's a matter of wisdom uh, to really, if you're in that endangered category, I think you're actually putting God to the test by just ignoring, and uh, you know the Lord, you should not tempt the Lord thy God. You know, cast yourself down. The, the, the devil said, and he will bear you up because it was promised in the book of Deuteronomy that you know nothing would happen to the Messiah the Lord would protect him but even the Lord said you don't tempt the Lord your God um, like that so I think we would be tempting the Lord if it was made available to us and we were to ignore it however if your conscience smites you at this point in time and you want to take some kind of reservation and maybe wait a while uh, I can't fault you on that because I myself would rather um, have the judgment of experience of seeing other people taking it, see what the effects it's had, uh, and it would help me better to make a judgment in that matter. But I don't think I would have any problem at this point in time to take the vaccine. So I, But it's a matter of conscience. Uh, the science indicates that it, it, you need to take it. And if you're a diabetic or you're hypertension or you suffer, especially those who uh, used to smoke, or people who smoke marijuana, for example, they're in real danger if they don't know it or not. It's a respiratory disease. Or if you've got asthma, that's a real serious one if you suffer from asthma. Uh, we just lost, uh, my wife just lost um, a family member who was only 52 wow. in, in Barbados, and um, she was a nurse, and part of her problem is that she was asthmatic. And I think the, one of the persons that are lost here in Antigua as well, recently I understand they were asthmatic as well. So because that's a respiratory problem, I can see how it can be very serious. So if you're a smoker or used to be a smoker and your lungs are not good, or you've been using marijuana for a while, that's going to catch up with you. I would strongly recommend that you, um, you take the vaccine if it's available to you. Thank you for that question. Another WhatsApp question from St. Martin, or actually a comment. When Christ comes, there will be no rapture. When he comes, he will be coming for his chosen saints who lived for him, those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. What are your thoughts from a biblical worldview, Pastor? Uh, I don't know. I think this person is probably a person that um, uh, I'm trying to think what position to be taken on that. Uh, they're probably a pre-raft rapturist, etc. The Bible teaches, and unless you want to ignore uh, Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 and Corinthians chapter 15, that our Lord is coming for his church, okay? We are told in Paul's writings in Timothy, t- t- uh, Thessalonians that God has not appointed the church to wrath. If you don't understand the doctrine of um, what is called dispensational teaching, that God has been dealing with Israel, and God has uh, set aside Israel in his current dispensation so that he's now taken on the church. And later on, uh, he's going to remove the blindness from Israel's eyes and graft Israel into the program when the church is taken. The book of Revelation from chapter 4 until the end has to do with uh, the tribulation period. You don't find the church mentioned after chapter 2 and 3. In chapter 2 and 3, he gives you a whole... Uh, historical course of the entire uh, church, how it will, how it starts in the first century and how it will end before the rapture. So I don't know what the perspective the person is coming from. I suppose that 
they don't believe in a rapture, but that's your opinion, and you have a right to hold that opinion, but it cannot be sorted, sorted, uh, supported biblically. You're probably either a millennialist or post-millennialist. I'm not too sure where you fit in. But there's a biblical teaching that the church is going to be taken. The word rapture is not there, but it's going to be snatched away. That's the word that's used in the book of Corinthians. Um, so I, I, I can't persuade you, and I would just recommend that you probably let Nathan give you a reference to the uh, topic that we dealt with some months ago on the Bible prophecy, especially when it comes to the rapture and the different types of beliefs in relation to the rapture and the basis of the pre-tribulation rapture. Yes, if you would like to hear more information about the rapture, in-depth episodes, you can go to the archive of That's Truth podcast uh, by going to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse website, and you can go to episode 95 and 96, and both of those are focused on explaining the rapture and what the Bible says about the rapture. Pastor, we have a caller from Montserrat. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello, um, good night, brother Nate. Good night, how are you doing? Not too bad. Good night, brother, mother, uh, brother uh, Pastor Murphy. Good evening, sir. Pleasure to have you here. Yeah, um, brother Nate, let me first, um, the manager of Anisha could say when you hear the, the, the program on the local radio station, um, thank, thank management. So let me openly thank you that the whole world can hear by so much. Thanking you for bringing Anisha. Well, thank you for that encouragement. We will continue to bring it. Right. Um, Brother Murphy, uh, Pastor Murphy. Yes, sir. Because just to kind of strengthen you, because me here want encounter with um, Uncle Akalin pertaining to Mary. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And he said, when, when you go to heaven, uh-huh. Mary now go on to see you. Uh-huh. Right. Okay. One point. You not got nothing right on me. You don't talk out of my head, right? Yeah, go right ahead, sir. Yes. One point. Um, that would be holding malice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that means sin, sin I go canting in heaven? <laughs> Good point. <laughs> right, <laughs> right? You, you, yeah, you, you, yeah. Turn, you turn it, me just go just bring the point them. Yeah, Good right. Po- Good point. Right. Um, the closest scripture you probably could even get, but he said, no, let his son go down by rat. Mm-hmm. But the point about it again, Mary, Mary not hear nothing for then and therefore, somebody don't have to tell Mary that no. Yeah. Because she personally not hear what you hear say about, about her. Yeah. No, it was Mary say, and, um... When they do, when they, when they run out of wine, it yeah. was Mary who said, anything he said to do, do, do it. it. Yes, correct. Right. Okay. There is only one mediator between God and man. Correct. Now, if you, if, if you bring Mary, that means there will be two, mediator, two mediators, so then they're not there for now something gone wrong with the scriptures right there. That's right. You, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're lo- very logical, very rational, and very reasonable. That's Right. So, um, and the only other one we probably could have think about. Uh-huh. I mean, the Roman soldiers who rough up Jesus, right? Yeah. So, probably, them would think, well, all the Jesus say, Father, forgive them. Uh-huh. Because of how them roughy. Uh-huh. You know, they still not believe that so, you know something? 
problem is, look, let me talk to the mother, for the mother, far from the son. Uh-huh. So the son reads the father, uh-huh. that they still can work. Yeah. So then I therefore, um, the argument, not me really carrying no away for me. Yeah, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I, I listen to those arguments people mention, and I, the okay, problem. Sure, sir. Yeah, the problem with the, the Catholic Church and the Catholic uh, believers is that they're not uh, Bible students. They don't really. I think they pretty much depend on what the church tells them. And don't forget that the Catholic Church has gotten this teaching about praying to the dead not out of the Bible. They've gotten it out of the apocryphal books. That's why they include the apocryphal books into their their Bible. So it is actually extra-biblical authority they're appealing to uh, to come up to this matter for reason. And the other thing is that they believe in what is called a repository of grace, that there's a reservoir of grace, and certain saints had more grace than they needed, so they've got this great bank of grace that you and I can draw on because they had extra grace. All that is complete nonsense and complete rubbish. There is no, and I, I, I'm very, I think if Mary were, to, everything I said in connection with that, she probably is endorsing it if she could hear, of course. But um, she herself knows that she is not a queen. They've made her a queen. She herself knows that she was not born immaculately. She was born a sinner. She said God was her savior. She herself knows that she was not assumed into heaven or taken directly into heaven and was never buried on planet Earth. All of this is just, Catholic error, Catholic uh, doctrine that is false and, and erroneous, and we just have to call into the Bible. To, uh, but the problem is they're not prepared to go to the Bible. They're just prepared to go with what the church says. And when you have a situation like that, you don't have a basis on which to argue. So you just got to preach the truth, teach the truth, and just leave it there, and hopefully the Spirit of God will use the Word to convince people in respect to these matters. So thank you so very much. I appreciate what you said. Thank you for listening from St. Martin, or excuse me, from Montserrat, and continue to encourage others to tune in. Time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.01. We still have 57 minutes left in tonight's program, so stay tuned. Continue to send in your questions. Continue to encourage others to tune in to That's Truth. Pastor, we have a... Another question that has come in from St. Kitt. Good night, Pastor. Can you please explain the following? What is meant by study to be quiet? I would, uh, without, um, I'm familiar with the passage, but I've never really um, actually gone into a detailed study of it. But um, I I would have to, for example, the words sometimes that I use in the King James uh, you almost sometimes had to find a modern version to see how it is used because a word that was meant uh, in the 1611 it meant, it meant a certain meaning. Over the years, that meaning shifts. So I would have to examine that particular verse, but I would assume on its face value that it is um, talking about the fact that you know we as Christians should uh, spend some time really, really uh, con- being contemplative as opposed to be just hasty uh, people who are like rats running up in society without any kind of pondering and thinking and musing and meditating. I think that's what the emphasis would be. Um, But I would need to check it a little bit more and uh, actually do a little bit analysis of it in terms of see what the Greek word means. This is not to discourage you, by the way, in terms of the King James or any other Bible verse. I hope you don't don't interpret that way. But I do feel that sometimes when you come to a common verse like this, because it's not a common expression that we we don't tell people we don't tell people to study to be quiet. 
But I do think it has to do with the idea of, of uh, being reflective and contemplative uh, as opposed to you know, living a hasty life without any rational uh, forethought, et cetera, et cetera. And I do feel that we need to study to do that today because we're in a rat race and there's so much pressure placed upon us to, to just make decisions in a hasty manner that very few people spend any time any longer meditating and thinking about decision-making and uh, are reflective. We, we, we are more reactive than we are reflective. And I think that is probably what the reference has to. But I would... I would uh, would you want to read it on? Yeah, so in, I believe the passage is first uh, the Thessalonians chapter four, eleven and twelve, and in the English Standard Version it says, "And to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you." Verse twelve, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That's why I was talking about uh, a real modern translation that brings out that particular truth. And so you can see it is plainly explained there in that particular passage and uh, along the same lines that we we need to be contemplative and thinking and, and uh, you know, focus on your own life and uh, stop all of this hasty lifestyle that we have, making decisions without any forethought that puts us in a, a realm of confusion. We're like rats running around in a circle and so we make bad decisions. Pastor, we have a caller from Bendel's Antigua. Thank you for calling and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening, Pastor Murphy. Hi, good evening, sir. How's your wife doing? Everybody doing fine. Very glad to hear that, sir. Yes, thanks. Pastor Anita, how are you doing? Doing well. Good to hear from you. Okay, thanks. Uh, Pastor Murphy, uh, one more question. Do you, do you believe in a man doing deliverance? Someone doing deliverance uh, on a Christian, like a pastor doing deliverance? Uh-huh. Well, I I don't I know that within the Pentecostal service, as about they've got some churches that even call deliverance ministries, and there are people who think that they have got uh, gifts. And normally, when they talk about deliverance, they talk about delivering demons out of people, uh, and they see that that is their calling. Um, uh, I don't see any biblical. Um, um, example of that in the Bible where somebody just goes around performing demonic and exorcisms out of, of, out of believers. That is not clearly. You, you can't find an example of that uh, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament uh, where there was any kind of demon deliverance. It was out of situations that people came into contact with, with individuals, but you didn't go around like ghostbusters. I mean, I think sometimes that I almost get the impression that within the church, we, we don't call them ghostbusters, we've got spirit busters, people who think that's their calling. And I don't see any, any, any biblical grounds for that. Uh, in terms of um, deliverance of believers, there, there are believers who have um, gone through uh, different experiences that do need some help because they have become habitually addicted to certain forms of sin. Take a person who um, has been watching pornography for the time they were 9 or 10. That is, that is just as addictive as a, a drug. And, and sometimes they just don't know how to, how to deal with that. How do you change your mind pattern, your thought patterns? How do you break those kind of habits? And in that sense, there's a uh, deliverance that might be needed. There might be uh, people whose parents and grandparents were involved in black magic. And there are a lot of people in the Caribbean, by the way, that is involved in, in this kind of thing. And there's a, something called transference, which transferred from the child or the parent or the grandparent to the children and the grandchildren. And there is a measure of demonic oppression that goes on there. 
uh, again, there is an opportunity for that kind of, of the deliverance ministry. So uh, to answer the question, um, there is a need for a deliverance of people who are on the demonic. Demons didn't leave when Christ uh, came. As a matter of fact, as you read the book of Revelations and the book of uh, Timothy, you'll find there'll be an increase of demonic powers as they know that the time is coming to an end. So as we move towards the end time, we're going to see a lot more demonic activity. And there would be times when believers would have to have some kind of deliverance in that regard. But the idea of going from church to church, I've heard of churches where people, a hundred demons out of a Christian, and I, I don't buy that, to be very honest with you. I don't buy that. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Amen. And when the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, uh, the, the Holy Spirit surely gives us protective power over over these over such things. But I do think a believer can be demonized in the sense he can come under the... As a matter, Paul talks about that. Don't create a, a beachhead, as it were, Paul uses uh, for Satan to take advantage. And I think that when people get involved in, in drugs, for example, you take a believer who has trusted the Lord, they get away from the Lord, and they started using marijuana and stuff like that. That opens the mind, because when you take these things, you get a high. You have no control of your mind any longer. And that allows uh, Satan to use demonic powers to begin to control your mind. So I do think in those kind of cases, there needs to be some kind of uh, deliverance. Because when the Bible tells you lay no hands on any man suddenly, it's just like you didn't deliver. You lay any hands on the man and come and give him to come for the man. Well, there may be some... Yeah, let me respond to that a moment, though. When he's talking about laying hands on no man suddenly, he's not talking there about deliverance. He's talking about ordaining somebody to the ministry who's a neophyte and who probably doesn't have the experience and just ordaining the man to the to the pulpit. Uh, he's warning uh, Timothy about that. Don't just, um, you know, without having, they haven't met the biblical qualifications that are outlined in, in Titus and in Corinthians, and sorry, in Timothy chapter 3. He's talking about, you know, don't go ahead and, and uh, put people into the ministry who should not be in the ministry because you, you like them or you think they've got a nice personality. They have to come to meet the biblical qualification before you ordain them. So in that passage about lay hands on the no man, is not talking about the deliverance ministry. It's talking about the ordaining of people into the, into, the, into the pastorate or into the ministry without having met the proper credentials that are mentioned in Timothy and also in Titus. But uh, you, I, I, I don't, and the thing about transference, by the way, the thing about laying hands on people, uh, that has to be very clear, because I, if you have, if a person who is demonized, uh, uh, they can transfer that influence onto you by the laying of hands. And that's the danger, by, could, I put, could I say this, that's the danger of a lot of, um, and I don't want to seem as though I'm being, I don't want be, people to think I'm biased or whatever it is, but that's the danger of a lot of uh, African pastors that come out of that setting who have, they see spirits behind everything. And if they, No, I'm serious. I'm dead serious. you just got to talk to any uh, person that is very honest with you about what is really happening in that part of the world. Even in, even in the religious people, they, they mix Christianity with spiritism. And there are a lot of those people that come out into the West and become leaders and pastors, and they, they've been involved in this kind of things before. And if you're not careful, you can have the transference of that influence on your life. So you don't, I don't want people putting their hands on me, period. Uh, and people got to be very, very uh, aware of what is happening. 
Well, I am one. I am one man that believe that as long as you are Christian, cover not the blood. That no demon can you can be right. influenced by demon, but no demon can can have no influence above you yeah. and making you do what you. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to tell sure. you, and why was with Samuel chapter eighteen from there when David when Saul had the evil spirit on him and David come and play for him. Right. And evil spirit left Saul uh, and, and uh-huh. went. Uh-huh. And David didn't lay hand on Saul. Right, right. That's an interesting um, passage, by the way, and that gives you the idea of the therapy of music. It really is therapeutic. It, it settles the mind. Of course, the same way music is therapeutic and can settle the mind, uh, the noise that we have that people call music today that keeps so much, con- you don't even know what the people are saying, we are in a state of tension. So those people who are constantly being bombarded with a loud radio, they can't contemplate, they can't think, they're, and they, they, they are constantly under stress because mental stress as a result. But it's very interesting you mentioned uh, Samuel chapter 18 because it tells us very clearly that one of the means of bringing in even mad people, uh, people who have become insane temporarily, uh, one of the aspects of the therapeutic model has to be good, solid music that has balance with rhythm and melody. Uh, that is also needed as part of the therapeutic model. As a matter of fact, um, sometime in later this year, hopefully, we should be able to tell the public of the plans for uh, an addiction rehab ministry. We're just pretty much waiting now for the final papers. But that is going to be part of our uh, therapeutic uh, methodology, not just music, but that will be part of it as well. Uh, so I think it's very significant that you should mention that because it, it definitely ha- plays a place in calming the mind and putting the mind in the right frame so that God can speak and the Spirit can minister to people. Okay, thank you. Thank you so very much. I appreciate that, sir. God bless you. Okay, and say hi to the wife, please. And make sure you take care of her. <laughs> TLC, a lot of TLC. <laughs> Have a great night. Thanks for your call. Thanks for listening. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse broadcasting from the beautiful island of Antigua. If you're listening in Antigua, I assume you are at home following the curfew set in place for COVID control. But we are thankful that you are participating in the program. If you have a question, the phone line is now open and available. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling one 268 462-7420. If you'd rather send in your question via WhatsApp or text message, send it to the following number. one 1454 Pastor, we have questions coming in faster than we can answer them. We appreciate uh, those who send in these questions, honestly. Yes, and if you don't hear your question come up right away, it's because there's a couple of other questions ahead of you, but we will get to your question. Another question from St. Kitts. What is meant by apt to teach? Able to teach, that's what it means. Uh, have the capacity to teach. That's one of the qualifications of a pastor. If you go through the list of those qualifications, you'll find that it's the only uh academic qualification that's required. The intellectual part is required. Most of the qualifications for the past are moral qualifications, but that one in particular uh, should be one of the qualities of pastor has. If you're going to ordain a person to the ministry, he must have the capacity to teach. If he doesn't have that ability to teach, uh, he's disqualified of being placed as a, into the pastoral role. Remember that these are qualifications that the Lord has given to the Apostle Paul to pass on to his church. Uh, and that is why I emphasize that the majority of these things are moral qualifications because sometimes we can put too much on the academic 
uh, and we think because a person is a, a brilliant speaker or he has a uh, he's well educated that that qualifies him. On the other hand, we must not assume that uh, because he has all of these moral qualifications, but he, he just can't handle the word. He can't. He's not a student. He doesn't. T- again, he's disqualified. You must have this dual uh, nature of qualifications that Paul talks about. Pastor, we have another caller calling this time from Belmont, Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello, good evening, folks. Good, good evening, sir. Fine, thank you. Pastor Murphy. Yes, sir. How are you doing? There's something that's bothering me about the church today. Well, share with us. Share with us, brother. Uh, According to Acts chapter 4, verses 32, 33, and 34, Uh the people, the the brethren there, sold their possessions Uh and brought the money to the elders and to Pastor Peter. Uh We seem to have it backwards today. Explain. The early in, in, in the book of Acts, uh-huh. they made themselves destitute for the gospel's sake. Yes. Today, we seem to want to make the gospel destitute for our sakes. Okay. And uh, do, you, do you think we have disappointed the world? Uh, and certainly the Almighty. Uh-huh. I will listen off here. Okay. I think it's a, uh, you know, in Acts chapter 4, if you, you know, that's the beginning of the church, and you remember that most of these believers, uh, really, it was costly to put your faith and trust in Christ. Today, people believe and they put their trust. There's no cost to it in the sense that they don't lose their property, they don't lose family relations, they don't use their inheritance. But in the New Testament times, when a, a Jew, for example, became a believer, completely disowned by his parents. Any inheritance that the parents had uh, vested for him is completely gone. So a lot of these believers, really, in coming to Christ, were paying a real economic price, and they would lose their jobs. Uh, It's just like, I I almost want to say that we're coming back to the first century, in the sense that some of the problems we're facing today among believers seem to be coming back for what used to happen. Uh, you know, it, the, the situation today, you, even to be a businessman, for example, uh, in the States, you, you c- can't run your business according to your Christian principles. You've got people now who want to take you to court because you wouldn't make a cake for their homosexual marriage. Uh, you don't want to make a wedding gong for their homosexual marriage or some other crazy stuff. And the government then penalizes you that you either lose your license or you've got to pay a huge sums of money. I just said to say that that maybe we're coming back to the first century world and we're going to have a lot of this suffering. But the point in Acts chapter 4 is that you've got a lot of believers living in complete poverty forsaken by parents, forsaken by family members, um, of course, losing their jobs, etc., etc., and there's a real need there. And there are believers who have means, and they're willing to meet the needs of the the believers in the church by using their property, disposing of their property, and selling it, etc., and bringing it and making it possible as a kind of a pool of resources that are now used to take care of the poor. Um, What I think to answer your question that we've reversed this thing today, um, I do feel, uh, quite frankly, that uh, believers are too materialistic today. I do feel that they're too much focused on the here and the now, and they take a lot of their resources and invest it in things that they're going to leave in any case. And uh, I think that we need to live more sacrificially and give more towards the, the gospel in terms of getting the gospel out and reaching, uh, reaching the world. I do feel, too, my brother, that 
you probably know situations, I know situations right now that I can talk about, that my heart bleeds. I could think of one right now that I, I just wish, honest to God, I just wish, <laughs> I don't want to seem as though I'm carnal, but I do wish I had money. Because there's situations right now where if I had funding, I would really have created a, a building or something to, to take some people that I know that are in abject poverty and the children are being complete, uh, completely abused by, by people who take advantage of, especially the young girls. I know situations like that, and I, I just don't have a solution to the problem. I don't know where. I just wish we had a place we could just help these people because I look at the situation. I, I always look at the situation this way. What if that was me or my child or a fam- family member? How would I want people to respond? I know how you want people to respond. And I have to respond the same way. But I do feel that there are a lot of things that we, we can do as a church and stop becoming uh, so uh, materialistic that we're trying to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate. And the truth of the matter is, by the time we really come to the age where we're going to enjoy these things, we can't enjoy them for more than five or ten years. Because we come to retirement, 65 now, you've got ten more years most to live. Most people die between 72 and 75. So I don't know where people are thinking that they've got all the security. That It's not there, right? And I think we ought to live more sacrificially and try to get the gospel out and try to help people who we know uh, need help and we need to do that. So I, I think in the book of Acts, it was a real time of compassion and sacrifice and uh, believers were willing to say, you know, I, we've got means. This situation is, is, is horrible and we're going to dispose of our means and make some funds available so that these people's needs can be met. That is true Christianity. James said what? He says, True Christianity, uh, religion is what? To visit the fathers and the widowless. Don't forget the fathers and the widowless, the orphans, uh, showing care and compassion for these people. He said that's the essence of practical religion. And the church has always led in the care of the indigent and the, those who are, are, are hurting, etc., etc. But I think that we're living in a Christian world where uh, this prosperity gospel has given people the idea that coming to Christ is about uh, success and riches and stuff like that and the pastor himself he's so much focused on that and then the congregation is focused so everybody's looking after number one they're not really looking at the real needs of those in the community and those around that we need to reach with the gospel and then of course the gospel has to be carried to the ends of the world how is that going to be done without some kind of funding you can't carry send somebody to another country and uh, because you don't get a, a work permit to and then do they have the skills that are needed in that country so you have to have some persons who you can send how are you going to send paul said how can they preach uh, unless they be called how can they uh, go without i said to be sent and the only way to send people to do missionary work is that we have to have the means to do that and to assist them so I'm, I'm on the same wavelength that you are on, and uh, I'm hoping that sometime very soon, oh, to answer your question in a more practical way, uh, we will tell you about a, a thing that we're trying to do here in Antigua to make a service, well, uh, gratis service to the Antiguan public for people who are under different forms of addiction. Uh, the government has cooperated with us in regards to some land that uh, shortly we'll be signing the lease agreement but the whole plan is, and we'll explain this in greater detail at some point in time, because of the real problem, not only in Antigua, but in the Caribbean with this addiction, we want to make a, uh, a service available to the public that is a gratis service. 
and uh, that's our church's way of meeting the needs of the young people, especially those who are informed of different addiction. Uh, if I might say one thing without going on further from one thing to the other, because my mind is just racing. If you ever visited the psychiatric hospital uh, up there, uh, I would suggest to you, if you really want to get a compassionate heart, uh, pay a visit sometime. Uh, there are people there that are not mad. They're there because they were under addiction and they had a breakdown. They need help. But in that kind of environment, I don't see how it's possible for that person to be salvaged. And it's painful to know that you've got this mixture uh, there. And uh, I know the government doesn't have all the solutions, don't have all the resources. And that's where the church and other people have to come in. We have to help people in those situations. Sorry to go off on that kind of a rant, but you've just touched a soft spot in my heart in that regard. And uh, I do hope that the church could take a different perspective on these matters and become more caring, more loving, and more sacrificial. Pastor, a question that has come in from St. Kitts. What is the law of context and the law of literally? Of literally? Yeah. Well, I'm not sure what the word literally is, but I can take the, the law of context simply means this, that when you're studying a passage of Scripture, any passage of Scripture, you look at what has come before the passage, and you look at what comes after. In other words, any time you're doing any kind of interpretation, you just can't look at a verse and uh, come to a conclusion. That's what it means, or a particular word in the Bible. A word is defined in the context in which the word is being used, because a word can mean many different things depending on the context. Uh, so that's the, the law of context means that when you're studying the Scriptures, or not just the Scriptures, by the way, any kind of uh, book or any kind of literature or any kind of document, uh, you try to see the context in which the phrase or the clause or the sentence or the paragraph or the word, that what it means, you can only get the interpretation when you see what is coming before and what is coming after. What's the other one she said? Law of literally... I'm not too sure if that's the correct word that she's using there, but I suspect what she is talking about, that, that particular principle would be that when you're studying the Bible, if the literal sense makes sense, seek no other sense. In other words, the tendency with people who uh, interpret the Bible, they approach it from different angles. Uh, there's what you call the allegorical group who try to give uh, mystical meanings to the words of Scripture without taking them literally. But the law of literalness would mean that you take the Bible literally unless there is some reason to interpret it uh, symbolically or to interpret it allegorically. And again, when you come to different forms of um, um, literary forms in the, in the Bible, sometimes it's a historical, it's narrative, sometimes it's allegorical, sometimes it's, it's, it's parabolic. It all depends, on, sometimes it's poetic. And when you're interpreting poetry, you know that you've got different types of poetic devices that you would use, similes and metaphors and metonymies and, 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 and um, personifications and that kind of stuff. So when you're approaching poetry, you can't approach poetry, you approach a narrative or approach a didactic portion of Scripture. So the law of literalness would be to take the Bible literally unless there is some grounds on it that in taking a literal sense, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So that would be the law. You always try to interpret the Bible what's called the, the grammatical, historical grammatical method, which is taking the Bible and the words to be literal as opposed to imposing some mystical meaning on them. 
I hope that answers the questions from the listener in St. Kitts. Thank you for sending those in. If you have a question and you'd like to call and be put live on the air, call 1-268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 1-268-782-1454. Pastor, a number of WhatsApp questions from Trinidad. How long should a young woman wait for a man to marry her while courting? Well, I think it depends on the maturity. It depends on the age of the person. Um, I I don't know um, the situation. I don't think you, you can actually assume that there is some strict law that needs to be followed in terms of the duration of a relationship prior uh, to marriage. I would say, however, that any time a person gets engaged, the normal thing would be that within a year, you're probably looking at marriage. Uh, I would think that would be the norm. I would say to people who are thinking of marriage uh, today, that it's a very serious, as a matter of fact, it's the second most important decision in your life. Your first major important decision is coming to Christ and get to know Him. After that, the second most important decision you make has to do with your marriage because it will either make your life a success or a disaster. And if you look at what is happening today, uh, any person going into marriage should give serious thought to the matter. Uh, there was a time when we did not require premarital counseling. That Those days are gone. Uh, the mindset is quite different than in previous generations. People got married and they were committed to a marriage. Today, people go into the attitude, uh, you know, I'm going to marry this person. If it doesn't work, I'll jump ship and I will marry somebody else. So the the whole thinking has changed and there's more need for uh, uh, premarital counseling. And could I say something else if I might say this on the radio? Don't wait until you've already decided to get married to come for counsel because your mind is made up. See? If you're dating somebody and you're thinking that maybe this is the person, that's a time you come to your pastor or some uh, person you respect and say, listen, I, we need some counsel here because I need to know um, if it's a wise decision uh, in this matter. And that way you're open to the suggestion that this could work or not work. But once you've made up your mind and you're already engaged and you come for counseling, mark it down. There's hardly anything anybody can say to change your mind. Um, but I would say that it just enough enough time to get to know the person properly to explore uh, the person's uh, value system, your own expectations, and uh, your differences. Those are vitally important. Uh, I think also getting to know the family of the, the, the person you're going to date. Uh, I personally have a view on this matter, and I'll share it with you. I normally, uh, it would have been an exception to rule for me to marry somebody where the family is not for the marriage. I tell people all the time, you're not just marrying an individual, marrying into a family. Mm-hmm. You want your grandchildren to uh, be treasured by your uh, grandparents. You don't want that when they go to that home that there's a clear hostility that is there. Um, so I would say time enough to get to know the person well. And may I warn you at this point in time, the moment you become physical in a relationship, it is over. And when I say it's over, I mean it becomes purely physical after that. Every time you meet, it's about physical contact. Uh, so you've got to avoid any kind of physical ta- contact during this period of time when you're exploring to get to know the person because after that happens, quite frankly, 
uh, every single day is to wrap around each other like a pole, a pole like a snake. That's what be, happens. So you don't want that to happen in your relationship. Be on your guard in respect to these things and, and try to analyze uh, these matters. When you visit the home of the person as well, I would suggest you see how she keeps the home. See how he responds to his mother or his father, his, his brothers and sisters. And <laughs> He's not going to change because he put a ring on your finger. If he is disrespectful to his mom and he's uh, disrespectful to his father, uh, if she doesn't is not worried that you're coming to the home to respect you enough to make sure that the home is clean and stuff like that, go into the bathroom. See what the bathroom is like. That's the bathroom you're going to have after you get married. So take your time. Uh, there's no particular um, time frame, but enough time to get to know the person well, get to know the parents well. And enough time to explore, ex- explore your differences and your expectations, and uh, also your vision for your for your marriage. Uh, what what how what what vision does he have for your marriage? Except those are things I would suggest. And until those things are kind of straightened out, uh, I would counsel you to not to be hasty. Uh, marry in haste, regret in leisure, and you don't want that to happen. Some very practical, great words of wisdom there. Pastor, are you going to charge us for those, or are those free? <laughs> those are free. A <laughs> <laughs> follow-up question in relation to that. Shouldn't the man have a revelation from God that she's to be his wife? I have a problem with that. Uh, why do you need a revelation from God? Uh, God has given his word and told us what to expect of a, a wife or what to expect of a, a, a young lady that um, is suitable uh, for, for marriage. Uh, this idea of waiting on a revelation, you might wait forever. Uh, God's revelation is complete from Genesis to Revelation. And I don't think that you as a person need to have any special revelation. I think you should put on your common sense, uh, use discernment. Of course, you pray and you ask God to to lead you in certain things and to maybe show you certain things. But I think you're making a disastrous mistake uh, to wait uh, for God uh, to give you a revelation. I have been saved now for the time I was about 16 or 17. I've never had a revelation from God. Uh, I've never had uh, anything along that line. And I really don't, I've never expected it. I've taken the Word of God uh, as a guidance for my life and been examining that, um, seeing how to properly interpret it, how to use it, what He expects of me, and use those principles to guide me in making my decisions relative to these matters. So I don't think that you have to wait for any, any special revelation. As a matter of fact, I think it's better that you use your good judgment and common sense and apply the biblical principles to your, to, to even your marriage, uh, make a decision, because you're going to have to be doing that even after you get married. So if you're waiting for a revelation every time to know what to do, you're in real trouble. Because uh, I don't think you're so special that every time you have an issue, the Word of God is given there for us. Uh, this book of the law shall not depart of the, uh, of the heart. For out, um, and he said, then you will have good success. And then, of course, we are also told that uh, the Word of God is given to us, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. And then it talks about uh, for reproof, for instruction uh, in righteousness, etc., etc. So I think it's better to take the Word of God and take good biblical counsel uh, from believers that are mature and objective, people that love you and love the person that you're thinking of getting married to and get some good biblical counsel. But Revelation, I, I, don't, I would not advise to, for you to wait uh, for that to happen. 
And one other question along those lines, why do young men defraud young ladies by making them believe that they are the one to only find out months later that they were not genuinely interested in them? Well, it's a simple answer to that, okay? Uh, Men pretend love to get sex. Simple, okay? Women give sex to find love. Hmm. So you've got that dilemma there. Women want to be loved. Men want sex. So men use pretense because what they want is sex. That's the reality, and unless people are prepared to face that fundamental reality, I think they will always be deceived in this matter. But that has happened to women again and again, and it still seems to me that it's never gotten through the thick head that the fact that men know that they can be um, won over by conversation, uh, the idea that they listen attentively and get involved, and they're, they're easily misled by people who show interests in terms of and men exploit that and that's why you meet a lot of women and say well, you know what I don't believe this is the same guy who got married we used to talk so much before we got married but now we're married he hardly talks he exploited conversation to win over the person and then because that's not his normal way of operating but he used that to get and disarm the lady and I would suggest to women to wake up and face reality and understand what is happening because that deceptive ploy still continues to be used and I can't understand up to this present stage after 6,000 years women are still falling for that ploy. A WhatsApp question from the UK. Good night, Pastor Murphy. Would you suggest, would you say that the law of attraction is evil or devilish? And if you are listening and you're saying, what is the law of attraction? I had to look it up myself. The law of attraction is a philosophy suggesting that positive thoughts bring positive results into a person's life, while negative thoughts bring negative results. So the question again, would you say that the law of attraction is evil or devilish? I think it is a um, abuse of uh, the Bible, and I think such people of Phil uh, Schuler with the Crystal Cathedral with positive thinking, uh, Norman Vincent Peale positive thinking again, and a lot of the Word of Faith people. I think they've been able to uh, use that and exploit that, and um, in my mind, it is being used for satanic purposes. And, uh, for example, a lot of these people uh, do not preach on sin because if you preach on sin, the sin is negative. So they always preach something positive and they're always telling people that, you know, so you find that they don't talk about hell. But I want to say this. God makes you feel bad before he makes you feel good. And you've got to come to the point of understanding that your problem is your sin between you and God. It's what is alienated between you and God. So if people are pre- preaching this thing that if you only preach positive thoughts, you know, you're going to get positive results, it's good pop psychology. And nobody disputes the fact that positive thinking is, is proper. Paul says in, Thessalon- sorry, in um, Philippians chapter 4, think on these things. And Paul lists about seven things the believer is supposed to think about. So we should think on proper thoughts. There's nothing wrong with that. But the idea that if you think something positive is going to happen to you because you think something positive, is it is pure um, shamanism. Let me put it that way. It is part of the occult system uh, that you, your thinking could create reality. Basically, that's what it is. So if I think I want a vehicle, 
I think positive I want a vehicle and they tell you that if you think positively you know you you uh, you confess it uh, you're gonna get it it is pure hogwash and that's what it is and it need to be seen for what it is but that does not discount the idea that there's need for the believers to be thinking positive thinking like Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 4 to keep the mind from going into depression and despondency Paul says think on these things and then Paul talks about prayer and then he says think on these things so with, with, with prayer before God and in addition to thinking of the things that Paul talked about brings you out of that negative anxiety mode but that's not the same thing that's being taught today by these people the idea is that by thinking positively you get only positive vibes and you can get you can create reality by positive thinking that is devilish that is not biblical and that is occultism that is shamanism that is not biblical that is magic basically and um, we need to awake ourselves and I think people are becoming awakened to it now uh, more than ever because the, it's being exposed for the fallacy that it is you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. You can also join us for this program on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your questions while you listen to the program and watch what goes on behind the scenes in the studio of the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We still have about 18 minutes left in the program tonight. Plenty of time for you to send in your questions. So if you want to send in your question via WhatsApp or text, send it to one two six eight seven eight two one four five four. Yeah, I want to add something else. When it built on the law of attraction, these are human laws that people have come up with. It's actually principles. They call them principles. These are not something you find in the Bible. But it sounds so uh, biblical when a, a person who is a preacher or some kind of a minister is talking about these are the seven laws or something. But those laws are human laws that people came up with, our principles people came up with, and people need to understand that. And that's why it's more important now than ever for people to get back to the Bible and become students of the Bible. Otherwise, they are going to be deceived. The only safeguard against error is truth. And the source of truth is Scripture. So the more you're grounded in Scripture and the more you examine what people are saying and and compare it with Scripture, you can avoid the deception that is coming that the Bible talks about. As a matter of fact, uh, it said that even if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. That is how powerful this deception is going to be. And we ought to be alert to it and prepare ourselves for what is coming. A WhatsApp comment or question from St. Martin in relation to the rapture. Good night, Pastor. When Christ comes, every eye shall see him. There will be no rapture. Would you agree with that statement? Again, the gentleman is confusing the two different things. The, the, every eye will see him has to do with the revelation, the book of Revelation. Uh, and, and they would mourn for him. That is when he comes back visible. In Thessalonians and Corinthians, he comes back uh, secretly invisible uh, so it, it's two different things the person is conflating he, what has happened unless you understand that the rapture is a mystery 
that is the church age mystery. The church is a mystery. As a matter of fact, we are going to do a, a program on the mysteries of the New Testament so that people understand what these things are about. The rapture was never revealed in the in the Old Testament. The revelation that he's talking about where every eye shall see him, that's spoken in the, in the Old Testament. That is called the day of wrath and the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. But the rapture was not a truth that belonged to the Old Testament. It's a New Testament truth that Paul uh, said in ages past it was not revealed, but now is revealed unto us the apostles. So if you don't understand the difference between the revelation, which is the day of the Lord when he comes back visibly, and the rapture, which has to do with the church, you're always in confusion. I would suggest that not even knowing this person, I would not be surprised uh, if this person is probably a Seventh-day Adventist or um, if they're not an Adventist, they could be uh, one of the other uh, groups that are not holding to uh, evangelical Christianity. Um, and, and there's some groups that, are, that, don't, that don't do that. So I am saying that if you don't have an understanding of the church and the distinction between the church and Israel, and the mysteries of the New Testament, you'll always conflate the two and can't appreciate there's a difference between the two of them. Uh, and uh, we'll spend some time on these New Testament mysteries and uh, probably bring some greater clarification to the person. WhatsApp question from St. Kitts Nevis. And by the way, thank you to each individual who has sent in questions or called in with questions. We appreciate the interaction tonight. That's what we're here for, is to answer your questions from a biblical worldview. From St. Kitts Nevis, good evening. Is the word awesome only ascribed only to God or the works of God? Is it correct to say that a message preached is awesome or someone's talent is awesome? Very interesting question. Good question. Uh, for example, also the word reverent. Okay. Uh, uh, is we t- the, the, the word reverent really in the Bible is we retain to God alone. Yet it is currently used, pastors call reverent this and reverent that. But in actual fact, that word reverent is a word only appropriate to be used of God. But again, a lot of these words have lost their their um, their power or their significance in terms of being the exclusive use to a particular individual, etc. The word awesome, for example, means nothing today. Everybody's awesome. This scene is awesome. This thing is awesome. We have robbed the scripture of its uh its intent and its power because we have vulgarized the use of, of, of these words. I, uh, If you read the, the Bible, you'll find that that word awesome only refers to God and his works. But we have now commonalized it and made it so common that we apply that to a, a lot of different issues. Now, whether or not, whether or not that is irreverent, for me, it, it really doesn't mean anything these days, to be very honest with you. I don't see it as uh, something that somebody taking an attribute or a character belong to God and apply it to something else. I don't see it that way, maybe because my ears have become so common to hearing that again and again. Um, I would say to you as an individual who wrote that, if you are your conscience bothers you how you use that word, you should never use it other than for God. But I think you're in danger uh, because you have that conviction to transfer that conviction to every individual because I'm suggesting to you that the people that are using that term, but they have no concept of being irreverent to God. So you've got to be very, very careful. But for you as an individual, this is where I think Christian liberty comes in. And uh, we've got to be careful sometimes that in trying to reverse something, we create more problems than if we understand what has happened and uh, try to at least... Um, 
maintain our position without at the same time aggravating uh, the sensitivity of other people. Next question is in reference to Psalm 91, verse 10. There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. The listener says, Pastor Murphy, I recently saw someone post this on Facebook and say that we should repost it and share it with others in order to protect our families and our homes from COVID-19. Is that a proper use of scripture? No, that's using the Bible as a mantra, basically. Uh, you, you, that, it, it is true there's a promise, okay, uh, as far as that is concerned. So is the promise not true? But, no, but you've got to read the context again. Okay. Uh, you've got to read the context of, and see what are the conditions that must be met in order for this to be true. The problem we keep having is people just popping out a Bible verse from one passage and not seeing the context of what the, the, the psalmist was saying and what are the preconditions in order to enjoy this kind of a blessing. So I don't, I, I'm not for the idea of just taking verses and pulling verses here and say because the Bible says that. Does that relate to David's situation exclusively? There's a biblical principle to be learned. Did David talk about conditions that had to be met and when these conditions met, therefore this is going to happen? But to just take that verse out of the Bible and just post it and, 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 and expect people to believe that somehow there's like a, you know, you pin it on your door and COVID can't come in so you can really recklessly and ignore all the the guidelines that are given. I think this is just being irresponsible and it's the abuse of Scripture. Pastor, I recently heard about a 12-year-old young man who has become very angry and violent, even violent toward uh, young ladies of his age. Uh, recently, his father had left the home, and he blames his mother, and seems to be taking that out on women. He's talking about pornography and all. What is the best solution for a situation like that? In, in the case that the mother is listening this evening? Well, I, I don't know the, the all the details. Uh, I can see a young man becoming very bitter that um, he doesn't have a father, and I, I don't know, again, um, you know, a lot of these things are factored in. I don't know the, for example, I don't know how that's affected his academic performance as a result, what teachers are telling him, what his peers are telling him, because a lot of his, his, um, a lot of his behavior is going to be in reaction to how he's, what he's accepted or not accepted. Uh, I don't know the kind of people that they move with, if those people have fathers that are involved in their lives and seem to be sharing uh, in the lives of their children. Then he finds he comes home, there's no daddy to be there, etc., etc. So I really don't know the whole situation. I would suggest to the parent who is um, having that kind of a problem, try to get the uh, see if the young man would be willing to talk to somebody, uh, a man who is mature, and who understands issues of this nature. Um, I think that sitting down with him and talking with him and finding out what's going on in his mind and trying to understand the bitterness and the resentment that is there, I think if we can get somebody to do that and to kind of give him a, a perspective on this matter uh, and put it in you know, a, a biblical perspective as well as a world perspective in terms of how this thing happens in life, etc., etc., and the repercussions of uh, him venting his anger on other people. And then if he has any kind of a conscience, I would think that the Bible principles should be brought to his attention. And the fact that God says, when my mother, my father forsaken me, the Lord will pick me up, show him that, he, you know, this is hurting. I, it's obviously hurting, and there's no quick solution to this problem. But he needs a male in his life as well. 
uh, I'm not too sure the church is going to if you have somebody in the church uh, that you can attach him to that's willing to mentor him and be a, a father to him in the sense that they can call him maybe take him out on a weekend uh, some weekends to have a, a ice cream or uh, you know just sit down and chit chat uh, I would think that those are things I would suggest uh, find somebody who can sit down and talk with him to find out what really is going on in his mind uh, see if you can get some person uh, within your church or um, I would assume that you're going to church. Sit down and talk with the pastor, explain what is happening. Uh, ask the pastor to meet with the men of the church and uh, ask if there are men in the church willing to be a surrogate father in the sense of uh, being playing the role of a dad to this young man to keep him and to counsel him and to, and to advise him and to allow him to be able to download uh, these issues with them and take him out once in a while take him for a drive take him for ice cream it doesn't have anything expensive I would think that that is what I would suggest at the, at the sooner that is done the better it is for this young man and the other thing is I would if I was a mother I would try to see if I can if he's at school he's 15 I would try to um, find out from the teachers and maybe some of his peers in the, in the school to see how he's performing and what reaction that is having from the others in the world because he's not only damaged by having his father not there but if he is drawing comparisons between the other people in the school or wherever he's going and the close relationship that they have with their parents the resentment builds in that matter if the resentment is causing him to perform badly in school it means his performance is being affected and that means that uh, his view of himself is being diminished that adds to resentment so you got one thing compounding the other and I would suggest to you that you need help in this regard but what he needs is a strong uh, caring male uh, in his life that tries to perform this surrogate role as, as a dad and it doesn't have to be one person it could be five of the or four people in your church uh, four, four men say you know what I will I will try to minister him this week, the next one, the next week. That way he feels loved, he feels cared for, and he's not in a world where there are no males that he can relate to. The other thing I would say that is very frankly thing is this. Get the pastor or somebody to speak to his own dad, to get him to play a role in his life, even if it's not a major role, incremental role, but let him remind him of his responsibilities and let him try to reach out to his own son. Those are some very quick things I would suggest, and I think if you take that advice, you'll find it is very, very, very profitable. But something needs to be done, and the sooner it is done, the better it is for this boy, because his resentment and his anger is going to one day explode, and it can be very, very devastating, and you don't want it to happen. A WhatsApp question from a listener in St. Kitts Nevis. Is it correct to say that a Christian is a sand ballot or a Tobiah? Neither. Because uh, a Sanballat is a, tra- a traitor. He's actually a, a hybrid. He's not really genuine. Those are the people that oppose the building of the walls when Nehemiah was there in the book of Nehemiah. So when you call a man a Sanballat and a Tobiah, you're actually calling him a, a traitor. You're calling him uh, somebody who's uh, in conspiracy against uh, God's, God's will, what God wants to do. So I would not recommend that anybody call anybody. You only call your enemies a Sanballat and a Tobiah because these are not 
Uh, and remember that these are Samaritans, basically. And these are not true people that belong to the Lord. They're among God's people, but they're not genuine, they're not authentic. They're like the tears that the Bible talks about, and the, the uh, you know, that, the, that they grow together. So it's not proper uh, to call a true believer a Sambalat and a Tobiah. And I think a person will be highly offended. It's like uh, calling a woman a Jezebel. Hmm. You call a Christian a Jezebel, uh, you're at war right there because you're putting her uh, as a pagan woman who brought in uh, idolatry into Israel, Baalism, and you're putting that that um, that label on, on a believer. So I would not, it's not a proper thing to do, and I hope your pastor hasn't done that because he's in trouble. <laughs> a series of three questions from a listener in Antigua. Is the Bible true? I have no, absolutely no doubt in the scriptures that the Bible is true, so I don't know why the person would ask that question. Are we in the end times? I believe we're in the end times. Mainly, I'll tell you why I believe that. If you uh, study Revelations 2 and 3, and you've got a complete profile of church history, these seven different stages of church history, uh, you will see that the final stage we're in is what is called the Laodicean Age. If you look at what it says about that church, which is the mark of the end time, I think if you look at it and look at the characteristics of the modern church today, uh, you will see that we are pretty much in that, that particular uh, level. So I do believe that we are in the end times. If that's the case, end times prophecies teach how Russia will come against Israel. Should a Christian in Russia just give up? After all, their country is destined to attack God's chosen people. I don't know, even if they want to give up, how they'll get out of in there. I mean, you just can't leave one country and go to another country. Um, uh, for me, if I was a Russian and I had knowledge of Bible prophecy, uh, I don't think necessary that I will uh, would, would leave the country. I'd be aware that this is going to happen, but I don't think that's a, a basis for me to leave the country. Um, if I was in the army now, that would be a different story altogether. I'd be thinking of maybe how do I get out of the army because we do know, according to Ezekiel 38 and 39, that the Russians, along with Iran, which is Persia, along with the Arab nations, are going to come against Israel. You can read that very, very clearly there, so it's going to happen. What is very, very significant is that Iran and Russia just did some military drills and also did some um, in the, the ocean there, um, in, in uh, the, the Pacific, not the Pacific Ocean, the Indian Ocean, uh, Russia and, and uh, Iran. And it's very significant that these countries are aligned according to the the um, the outline that is given to us in the book of Ezekiel. But I don't know that a person could just leave Russia because of that. Um, I think if I was in the army, I would be a little bit concerned myself. But And I don't know if they could just leave and go. Where would they go? Uh, and one final question. I think this will probably be the final one for the night. Pastor, how much authority does a young lady's father have in a situation of dating? For example, if the father says to a young man, you cannot date my daughter because you are not called into full-time ministry and being a missionary, I need someone to marry my daughter who will take on the ministry that I am retiring from. I would I would suggest that if your the parents are against the marriage to wait. You have to somehow win over the girl's parents to yourself. If you don't do that, you're gonna have problems in the future. So it might take some time to do some persuasion. 
Uh, but I would I would recommend that you don't rush into the marriage and don't pull her out of the mar- into the marriage because I can see what the father wants. Uh, meanwhile, I would suggest that you be in a time of prayer because his will for his daughter may not be God's will for her. And he might want to put her into full-time ministry when she's not called to that kind of a ministry. So I think he's also in danger of imposing his will uh, on his child. And I would suggest to him as well that he needs some very uh, time to do some serious prayer, and not just uh, because he's the dad and she's submissive to him, that therefore he imposes his will. Uh, he needs to find out what uh, what she feels is God's will for her life and not to block it. Uh, so... His will must not be the ruling principle of what his daughter becomes. She must know what God's will is for her life and his wisdom for him uh, to listen to her in regards to how God is leading her. However, if she is going to feel the Lord leading her to the mission field and she is now dating you and you're not leading the mission field, that's a different story altogether. And she ought to be able to see the disparity between these two things. But hold on and prayer and see what God does. If it's his will, it will happen. If it's not, you can try It'll never happen. He'll intervene. In the last 30 seconds, you really think that God can answer that prayer and can change hearts, Pastor? Oh, the Bible makes that very, very clear, doesn't it? we got to believe and we got to trust and we got to pray. And he said, men are always a prayer, not to faint. And we're to, we agree on any matter and prayer, believing, we'll receive. Thank you very much for joining us for tonight's episode of That's Truth. Thank you for interacting with us. Thank you for the questions you sent in for the phone calls. God bless you. Keep your radio dial tuned to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. And Lord willing, we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's Truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.